Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the continent. Ufahamu in Kiswahili translates to understanding or consciousness in English. Our podcast will feature content and cover events with the aim of broadening our audience's understanding of the continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'll be your host. Each week, we'll start the podcast with a brief overview of some of the things we're reading and learning about the continent. Then, we'll feature an in-depth conversation with a thinker, maker, or innovator. This week on Ufahamu Africa, we chat with Dr. Peter Alegi about football, politics, and nation-building. Our conversation coincides with the 31st African Cup of Nations, AFCON 2017, being held in Gabon. Before we chat with Dr. Alegi, I'm joined by Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant, Sarah Agatoni, so we can share what we're reading and learning from the continent this week. So, Agatoni, I understand there's some beef between Uganda and Rwanda this week, or should I say chicken? (laughs) So this past Tuesday, Rwanda banned Uganda's poultry products after the presence of the H5N1 virus was confirmed in Uganda. Mm, Bird flu. Yeah, and so Ugandans on Twitter were not happy. Uh, And on the same day, Uganda played and lost to Ghana in the seventh match of AFCON, the African Cup of Nations. And so naturally, these two events evolved into a Twitter wall. Naturally. Yeah. (laughs) And so we'll be sharing some of our favorites on our blog. And as a Rwandan, I think Uganda won, hands down, even if 80% of their jokes were about size. (laughs) Well, uh, talking about Twitter and size jokes, um, I'll go ahead and share about a piece that was prominent in my Twitter and Facebook feeds this week. It's a New York Times article on questions from President Trump's transition team about Africa. Apparently, the list of questions was four pages long, and it included things like, quote, with so much corruption in Africa, how much of our funding is stolen? Why should we spend these funds on Africa when we are suffering here in the U.S.? Quote. There were also a couple of questions about the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief or PEPFAR. For example, quote, is PEPFAR worth the massive investment when there are so many security concerns in Africa? Is PEPFAR becoming a massive international entitlement program? Quote. You know, while I think these are important questions to ask, I have to admit that I'm a bit concerned about the tone that they're taking. Georgetown political scientist, a favorite of Ufahamu Africa's blog role, Ken Apollo, he has a great post answering some of Team Trump's questions on Africa. And I'll read just an excerpt of what Ken wrote um, to them on their question about corruption. Quote, leaders do terrible things all the time for political reasons and not because of an inherent failure in moral judgment. Learn to respect and trust your African counterparts. Know their interests. Don't think and act like it's 1601. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd also recommend a piece we published in the Monkey Cage this week that specifically aims to answer Team Trump's questions about China and Africa, a a topic we're actually going to cover next week for Lunar New Year. I learned a lot from this post, and you probably already knew that China is Africa's leading trading partner, but I wonder... You know, did you know that in 2015, Chinese exports to Africa were almost quadruple U.S. exports to Africa? Wow. How about you, Agatoni? Um, what, what else are you reading or learning from the continent this week? This week, uh, From Africa is a Country, Nicholas William Stevenson Smith discusses inequality in Africa. In a short piece titled African Inequality Rising, Smith remarks that even as the human development index of countries such as Nigeria increases, Mm -hmm. every country in Africa is less equal today than in 2010. Mm. And 
to Smith draws links between the neoliberal policies imposed by lending institutions um, in the 80s and uh, 90s and the tendency towards capital-driven market economies in Africa. And so it seems to be that African states just need to find a more workable balance between market economies and welfare states. Speaking of lending, The Guardian came through with an article titled Aid in Reverse, How Poor Countries Develop Rich Countries. The author, Dr. Jason Hickel, references a joint study by U.S.-based Global Financial Integrity and the Center for Applied Research at the Norwegian School of Economics. Mm-hmm. The study finds that when taking both financial and non-financial transfers into account, developing countries are the net creditors of the world. The study estimates that for every dollar of aid that developing countries receive, they lose $24 in net outflows. Definitely worth a read. Hmm. Hmm. What about you? Anything else? Yeah, one last thing, actually. In preparation for our conversation with Dr. Peter Arlegi, I read his blog post from last week that um, reviewed a new BBC radio documentary called Beyond the Pitch. His piece gives a great overview of the documentary, which travels across time and space to show how football and politics have intersected on the continent. Um, So you can check out our website, ufahamuafrica.com, on Monday morning when we'll post links to these pieces we've mentioned, as well as bonus links to things we find interesting. This week on Ufahamu Africa, we celebrate the 60th anniversary of the African Cup of Nations with a conversation about football and politics in Africa. Our guest is Dr. Peter Alegi, professor of history at Michigan State University and author of, among other books, African Soccerscapes. He also co-hosts a podcast, Africa Past and Present, which recently released its 100th episode. I just wanted to start by thanking you for joining us for the podcast this week. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're a historian, and one of your areas of expertise is football, or as many Americans know it, soccer. And it just so happens that this is a perfect time to be talking football um, as it's the 60th anniversary of the African Cup of Nations, AFCON, which some of our listeners may know is a biennial football tournament that brings together the continent's best teams. And, you know, I was curious, after 60 years of AFCON, if you had a favorite story or a favorite memory from one of the tournaments. Well, as someone who has worked mainly in South Africa, my favorite story memory is the victory of South Africa in 1996. This was the first tournament that South Africa hosted in, in soccer terms. You know, looking back at it, in some ways it was very surprising because South Africa had uh, been quite unsuccessful in its first international matches coming back uh, from three decades of isolation. They had, you know, uh, been spanked by Nigeria and Zimbabwe and so on and so forth. And the expectations were fairly modest. When the tournament began a few months after the famous Rugby World Cup, you know, the Invictus uh, moment of that great victory of the Springboks with Mandela, you know, going onto the field and acknowledging the uh, nearly lily-white team as a representative of, of the new South Africa. Here comes the, the soccer team, which was much more diverse mm-hmm. than the rugby team. I mean, the captain of the team, who I just met a few months earlier, Neil Tovey, uh, was white. Uh, the coach was white. There was, you know, there were, uh, in, in South African racial terminology, there were Africans, colors, uh, whites, and so on on the team. So it was really kind of the rainbow nation, mm-hmm. you know, performing uh, for the crowds. And they performed so well. I mean, there were some great players, of course, but it was also that, that magical euphoria that lasted several years after the first elections that carried over into the sports domain. 
And uh, Mandela, of course, showed up for the for the final match, as he had done several months earlier at the um, Ellis Park Rugby Stadium in Johannesburg. And this time at the FMB Stadium outside Soweto with nearly 100,000 people there and uh, waited till about, what, 13, 14 minutes left in the match to finally score the go-ahead goal, mm-hmm. uh, scored by a, you know, a journeyman striker who had just been put onto the, the pitch a few minutes earlier by the coach, uh, Clive Barker. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the, he then scored a second goal just a couple of minutes later and I think the pandemonium that that broke out at the stadium and in the country um, in February of 1996 after that victory is my fondest memory. Mm -hmm. And South Africa has uh, yet to repeat that triumph. So, you know, the passing of time has made it even special. I wonder if there's anything in particular you're looking forward to in this uh, 2017 AFCON tournament. Unfortunately, South Africa is not participating as a result of not having qualified. Uh, In fact, uh, Nigeria, too, has missed out again on the final tournament. So some of the giants of African football uh, are not there. So, you know, emotionally, I'm not terribly invested, I must admit, in this particular (laughs) tournament. And um, some some would say that that's good for being more productive since the games are played in the middle of our workday here in North America. Uh, But I am watching uh, here and there as much as I can. And um, I am following some of the teams that really interest me uh, right now, for example, are Ghana, also uh, Cote d'Ivoire. And um, I thought Algeria was going to do well, but yesterday they lost to Tunisia in a, in a fiercely contested North African derby. So what I'm looking for is really what I always look for when I'm neutral in, in a sporting event, and that is uh, a good entertaining competition. Nice, nice. And so anyone who's listening can can tell you're a football fan. I wonder how you came to study football as a scholar. What set you down the road to studying football and football and politics in, in Africa? Well, I guess I was born with the football virus, but it hasn't been too bad for my health. Um, and I was born in Rome, Italy, and grew up there. And so, you know, football is in the water, as it is, you know, in most African countries. You, you grow up, it's, it's part of the air you breathe. And, uh, you know, I played, I um, followed, of course, uh, the Italian national team and my own favorite club team. And so, you know, I was very much uh, a passionate um, soccer person from, from a very young age. And I think growing up in Rome, looking back, had an impact on sort of what happened to me later, which is realizing that sports, and particularly team sports, uh, not just football, but basketball and other team sports, uh, are made more significant in many ways by what happens around the field and outside of the venues. And the reason I say that is that, of course, Rome, being 2,800 years old almost, um, was also where the ideology of bread and circus was developed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would walk around and go on school trips and, and move around the city, and we would still see hard evidence of the Colosseum, the Circus Maximus, but also the smaller venues, the theaters, and so on that the uh, ancient Romans had built, and and this you know this whole idea that there is a long past, but also that there was great state investment, political and economic investment, and cultural investment in sports is something that I think had a sort of gradual effect on me, but also really stoked a, a passion for history. Um, now the African side of things uh, is is interesting because. 
you know, coming from the Mediterranean, I think most people would say they have some kind of African blood, particularly the southern portion of, of the Mediterranean, right? Uh, whether it's North African or, or, or elsewhere, we're, we're kind of a, an interesting mix of, of people and cultures. Um, but more, more sort of personally, you know, the 1980s were very much a time of the anti-apartheid movement internationally. And, um, you know, that was an issue we talked about uh, at the dinner table table we read about in newspapers and of course watched on the news and so on but then i came to the united states in the mid 80s and i happened to be on a campus in new haven connecticut that was very active in the divestment uh, movement and i was so impressed by how these young and in many cases privileged people you know young men and women black and white were putting themselves on the line to get their university to divest uh, from apartheid South Africa. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they had built a shanty in front of um, one of the main libraries. And I got a kind of a political education as a very young person mm -hmm. about what activism can do in a place very, very far away, even if it's, you know, sometimes only symbolic. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that kind of turned me on to anti-apartheid uh, politics. And um, actually, when I went to college, I decided, okay, you know, I've chanted some slogans and uh, have bumper stickers on my on my beat up car and all of that. Now I could probably learn some history um, and, and, and get a little bit of a background. And uh, that's what I did in college. Mm -hmm. And after college, I decided, okay, that's enough book knowledge. I need to see for myself what South Africa is like. This was about uh, two years or so after Monday had been released and you know now we look back and we think of that period as a transition period and in some ways it was but I think we have a bit of romantic memory of what was happening during that time because when I finally arrived in January of 1993 um, it was a very tense time and a very violent time um, I was a sports coach in a, a black school outside of Cape Town in a township called Kailicha which was only eight years old at the time and already had 300,000 people living there, which is just an astonishing thing. And that's where this whole idea of linking sports and politics really clicked for me because I realized that sports were much more than simply a game. They were, they were embedded in the communities in which they were played and watched, and they had much deeper meaning than simply the scores of games. And so after a bit of preliminary research... I discovered that there was no full-length academic you know, monograph uh, devoted to black soccer in South Africa. And I was amazed because that would be like going into a, any public library in the United States or college library and not having any books about baseball. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like a cultural crime against the country in a way. <laughs> I read um, parts of your book, African Soccerscapes. And it's really great to hear you talk about this moment, you know, in South Africa, where there was this great investment in the national teams, both in rugby and, and in football. And it's making me think about this chapter in your book titled Nationhood, Pan-Africanism and Football After Independence. Um, in it, you write about how in that post-independence moment, right in the, in the early um, 60s, how some African governments saw football as this way to build nationhood. Do African governments today see football and sports more generally as an investment in nation building? 
That's a really good question. I would say not to the same extent. Mm -hmm. And it has everything to do with the time period. I mean, the the 60s into the first half of the 70s is a period we associate with kind of the euphoria of independence and um, African nationalism, maybe at its peak. And there was a real need at the time to bring together nations that had been artificially created by Europeans in the late 19th century as colonies. So what could really bring people together? Very few things. Sports was was one of them. But what happens in the 1980s has something to do with sports, but also a lot to do with the political and the economic and the social changes that were going on in the continent. By the late 1980s and into the early 1990s, African governments invest less and less in the kind of nation building they were doing earlier, uh, while at the same time still trying to generate you know, patriotic pride and unity among the population. Um, and there's two examples of this. One is the very, very intense commercialization of soccer that really takes off in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And the second one is uh, that government invests a lot more in mega events. And so the emphasis shifts. It shifts basically and structural adjustment programs have a lot to do with this as the state is divesting from health and education and and everything but the military. Sports really suffer at the grassroots. And as a result, the emphasis goes on elite sports. And the investments go into, you know, the very top of uh, the sport pyramid, the national, the senior men's national team in most cases, and as well as the big events. And so that's what the governments are really doing. And they're still using it for sort of public relations and marketing purposes. Uh Um, And, um, you know, I think that's very deliberate. It's a very political agenda, but it's of a different kind from what we saw in the 60s and 70s, you know, where Kenneth Kaunda or Kwame Nkrumah, you know, would very visibly, um, you know, and tangibly, I should add, support the domestic league as well as uh, the success of the national team in international competitions. But I think, you know, the investments should be much more at the grassroots. And, and it's amazing how little money, you know, is really necessary to have tremendous rewards down the road. For example, you know, to fund school sports doesn't take a lot of money. It takes intelligent uh, uh, sort of leadership and strategic planning as well as training. So you get the coaches, you know, to be qualified and, and who can make an impact. You also are exposing boys and girls in the schools to the sports, and there's no real barrier of entry. You can provide a basic facility with a synthetic surface that can, you know, where you play multiple sports, not just soccer. Right. So that's that's one one investment that that is, I think, uh, must be made. The other area, of course, is in the rural areas, where you see very little of the formal sporting structures needed to develop um, a sporting culture properly. And you know, there's a huge urban bias in African sports, as there is in many parts of the world, I would argue. And uh, and I think that's a big issue. And, and women's uh, football in particular it has grown in the last decade in, uh, in many countries, but it still lags far behind the men's game. And uh, again, you know, in conjunction maybe with the private sector, but certainly with public investment that is not huge, you know, it's smart investment that's needed. I think a lot more can be can be done to um, to grow the game. And you know, I have this student. She's writing a thesis about football and nationalism in Africa. And one of the hypotheses that she hopes to test is whether a team's performance in something like Afcon or the World Cup can influence how much citizens identify with the nation. So. 
for example, do um, do we see an increase in national pride among Zambians after their football team beat Cote d'Ivoire in the 2012 AFCON final? Has national pride among Zambians declined since then, since their team hasn't even uh, made it to the group stage? And in fact, they didn't they didn't even qualify, I think, for this current AFCON. And I just wonder what you think about this idea that team performance can shape how citizens identify with the nation, can shape you know, their patriotism or their national identity versus, say, their ethnic identity. If you look at um, uh, you know, Zambia, most definitely in 2012, when Chipolo Polo won the African Nations Cup for the first time, there was a huge uh, explosion of national pride, and rightly so. Right. Uh, I actually watched that final match uh, here in East Lansing, Michigan, with uh, Zambians, mm-hmm. um, and you know these these folks were. I, I don't I don't have the words to describe the joy and pride that they felt. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were tears in their eyes mm-hmm. and disbelief to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. You know that finally this miracle had happened, and um, there was a moment in that penalty shootout phase right before the first shot was taken. The Zambian players got together and prayed, and I remember my, my Zambian friend saying, "Oh, now they find their religious beliefs." You know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you could say, you know, that's also true of, of this kind of patriotism and this this sporting nationalism. You find that at, at certain points, and and soccer certainly brings that out, especially when everything is on the line, like in an AFCON final. Uh, The issue, though, with sports is that because they are an emotional experience, you know, they're both hard. These uh, these emotional feelings are very hard to document, to quantify, and they're also quite temporary. Just as you pointed out, in 2012, Zambia wins the Nations Cup, but now they're not even in the tournament. And, you know, I don't know about any social scientists who have gone out and done surveys, but my hunch is that um, absolutely, citizens' patriotism has risen and fallen, um, you know, in relationship to their team performance on the field. What remains maybe more constant is that national identity remains strong in terms of, you know, when the team takes the field, uh, 70-something language groups that are in, in Zambia, they all support uh, the Chipolo Polo national team. The same way that in Nigeria, 500 plus languages spoken in Nigeria, when Super Eagles uh, play for 90 minutes, you've got Nigerians. You don't have Ipo or House or Ija or Yoruba or Fulani, etc. So I think politicians are sensitive to the fact that they can't control the outcome of these of these games. And maybe that also explains why really the political investments we see in the African game at the international level now have more to do with, um, you know, uh, hosting big events mm-hmm. rather than investing in the in the sporting uh, element of them, you know, building the highways and the airports and the stadiums and, right. and so on and so forth. That's something you can control and determine and, and you can craft the image more easily than trying to, you know, make sure your team makes it uh, deep into the tournament or even win. Right. So that's kind of my two cents on, on an issue that I think is quite, quite interesting and, and quite complex, depending on where you are. I learned a lot from our conversation today. So I want to thank you for your time and for sharing your insights with us and, and our listeners. Okay, take, right. care, take care. And uh, we'll talk soon. Yes. Cheers. That's all for this week. Share your thoughts and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent at ufahamuafrica.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College. 
sponsored by the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Sarah Agatoni, Smith College Class of 2017, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. We leave you this week with Maya Majumder singing Strange Fruit. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama. Strange fruit. Blackbody swinging in the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees Pastoral scene of the gallant south The big bulging eyes and the twisted mouth Fruit for the crows 